Good morning, church. My name is Tim Sith. I have the privilege to be a part of uh, Shreve Island MC. And uh, today we are reading 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 through 8. It begins, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God, have, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading, unfading crown, crown of glory. Likewise, you, are, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, the pro, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion, seeking, uh, seeking someone to devour. This is the word of the Lord. You can sit down. Amen. We'll dismiss our school-age kids. I think that's right. Is that right? Yes, school-age kids. Okay, headed to the back. Um, the rest of you who are in here, let me invite you, if you haven't already, to open your Bibles to First. Peter chapter 5. Um, it is a real, uh, real joy to have um, our friends from the Lovewell and Purchased and Rise Up and Roast here with us with distinguished honor that they are here. They literally are some of my heroes. I told Sarah earlier to see Cassie and Sarah in the same room at the same time is like uh, catching two uh, unicorns together. Um, even more would be to catch their husbands also in those same rooms. Their husbands, both Luke and Brent, are uh, just super busy in ministry all over the place. Um, talking about, uh, Jason talking about uh, how I learned so much when I serve with them. I've told this story before a couple months ago. Um, I was, uh, had to run to our downtown office to grab something before service on a Sunday and I got there early and uh, one of the... The homeless men sitting out front of the office there, and I had never, I didn't, I didn't know him. Um, and I pulled up and I got a couple things out and I said, how you doing? And he said, I'm doing pretty good. As a matter of fact, would you like to sit with me and have a Coke? And I was like, where's this guy have Cokes from? You know, he's homeless. He's just there. And I asked him and he said, well, somebody just came by and gave me two Sprites and I'm drinking one. I'd like you to have the other. And I shared a quick sip of Sprite with them, got back in the truck and rode off. And I just thought, it's amazing how generous this man just was with me. He had only two of something and he gave me one of them. And what it would be like for me to be generous on that level to someone else. Um, really that image stays in my mind and my heart. And uh, anyway, I would just echo what's already been said. I encourage you um, to serve, to give, to participate. So many options and opportunities. We are in the middle of celebration of hope and we do this every summer at this time and then we begin because we don't want it to be out of sight, out of mind. We want to, uh, there are some of our friends who are serving in some really difficult places, bringing the kingdom of God to bear, pushing back the kingdom of darkness and expanding the kingdom of light. And those, those aren't just words, those are like, the ways people live and how we take the kingdom of God and we live on the very redemptive edge with Jesus, bringing hope to bear. And we have some of our friends in some of those really difficult places and we're gonna be talking about them this month um, as we keep doing that today's with Lovewell. We've got a team right now that is actually boarding. I think I have a picture back there of them uh, going through security. Uh, this is some of our team that's headed over. Uh, toward Asia and um, are giving, have raised a ton of money to get over there. Um, I want, before we start the service, just to pray for them uh, as they're boarding a plane. And if you could just pray silently as I pray aloud. God's already answering prayers. We've been praying this morning that they'd get through security and they did and they'd get all their luggage and they did. And 
Now we're just praying that God would use them mightily. God, your heart for the lost is why we are here. It's why we are literally here. Because when we were still sinners, you came and died for us. And then you sent someone to tell us the gospel. Someone to point us to Jesus. Someone to be the gospel in the flesh to us. Either parents or teachers or youth pastors or someone. And now we are literally here as a church because you want to extend that mission to the very ends of the earth. Because there are so many of your lost sons and daughters that are still out there that still do not know the gospel. And some may have heard it, but they've never seen it. So God, I pray for our friends as they are headed over to minister and to be a witness and to love on some of our other partners who are serving in such dark places. Such a, such a dark place that they name it Dark Stone. Lord, I pray that, uh, Lord, that the kingdom of light would expand. It would expand on this plane as they fly over with the people they're sitting next to. It would uh, expand as they land and spend time in airports and as they reach their destination. God, would you do the kind of things that only you can do? Would these people who are going over, although they are so full of faith, would, they, would their faith even expand all the more as they watch you work? Just as the disciples were in the boat and you spoke to the wind and wave and they said to each other, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Would they have those kind of moments? Who is this man? Who is this savior? God, do what only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are walking through 1 Peter and we come to chapter five and we only have a week or two left in this. Um, I read this text a hundred times this week and thought, man, this is going to be an awful sermon because it is so like didactic in its nature and what's the pastor supposed to look like and what are the people supposed to look like and and then somewhere on Friday as I'm reading through it you know you have these times where the word of God comes alive to you and that happened and I pray that uh, it comes alive to you today as we talk about it There are three main focuses that uh, Peter's going after today. Remember, he's talked about us as a resurrection people. He's talking to people who are alienated. They're in a strange land with strange people. They've lost everything that they've known, their culture, their way of life, their means of income. They are likely hiding amidst a population uh, of Gentiles and uh, they're being persecuted on every level. And then we get here and this feels like, like this paternal, this fatherly address. He's going to write second Peter, but I don't even think Peter knows that at this point. And he's given them like this last, if I can't tell you anything else, this is what I want to tell you kind of address. And he's really addressing three things in the focus that we're going to look at today. What does godly leadership look like? What does godly fellowship look like? I know that's not a word, but pastors make up words all the time. Um, what does godly fellowship look like? What does it mean to, to follow in a godly way your leaders? And then a unified resistance. And the first two are so important because the third exists. Basically is what he's saying. We've got to be unified in our resistance because we have a real enemy. That's why the first two are so important. Without leadership and unity and mutual submission, the church is just going to look like the world and we'll have no distinctiveness and we'll have no power. But if we do follow what the Lord tells us about godly leadership and godly fellowship and this idea of a culture of honor and a culture of unity, we can have successful resistance against the enemy. So first, a word to the leaders on godly leadership. 
He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, he commands these people, these leaders, to shepherd the flock that is among you. This word elder, there's two words for elders used in, in, uh, in the New Testament, two main words. One is episkopos, which is like a, uh, uh, a title or the position of an elder that we would call the president the president. We wouldn't talk about him being presidential. We would say he's, he's the president. It's an office. This is the episkopos. This is the word used. But this is not the word used here. The word used here is uh, presbyteros, which, is, which we know as Episcopal and Presbyterian. That's where they get those words. And this is meaning like uh, not the elder as a title, but uh, the elder or shepherd as a function. That those who are spiritual leaders is what we would say. Those are spiritual leaders among you. It's not telling us the qualifications of an elder. That's in other places. But he says to those who are spiritually leading among you, to those who are shepherding among you, to those who have the distinction of being a godly leader. Um, and then he gives this address. But before he even does that, he says, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, he kind of gives like the first idea of you godly leaders, make sure that you too are a witness of the sufferings of Christ. It simply means, in other words, that you have a level of intimacy and walking with Jesus. That this is just not head knowledge, things you know, but this is heart knowledge. This is heartfelt. These are things that you've walked through. Not just for godly leaders to have good theology, and they should, but godly leaders, more than that, should know how to hear the voice of God. They should know how to listen. They should, they should know about the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And that's the first qualification of a godly leader is intimacy with Jesus. The point here is that as we have intimacy with Jesus, we become a witness to the work of Jesus, to the world that we're involved in and to the people that we lead. We become an actual witness. That's what Peter says. As a fellow elder and a witness in verse one. The same word of this witness is the word where we get the word martyrdom from or a martyr for Christ. In the same way that we witness in a uh, culture that is hostile towards the things of God, we as godly leaders should be a witness to the work of God. Then the charge, the second thing, one intimacy with Jesus. The second thing he talks about is shepherding the flock among you. You should shepherd the flock among you, that is among you, shepherd them, shepherding the flock. We get this imagery of a shepherd, and this is all throughout the New Testament and all throughout the Old Testament of God as our shepherd. Maybe you think immediately of Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd. What is the role of a shepherd? The shepherd is to lead, to feed, to care, and to protect. This is what the Lord is my shepherd, as you read through Psalms 23, to lead the sheep or to go down to a river that is roaring by. They're too, they're too scared to drink of that. So Psalms 23 says he's the, the, the good shepherd leads us beside still waters. He makes the river still so we can drink from it. He leads us into, he feeds us into green pastures. It doesn't say brown pastures. Brown pastures are dead grass. There's nothing to eat there. He leads us into green pastures. He leads us. He feeds us. He cares for us. He protects us. That's what the good shepherd does. And in the same way, godly leaders, as under shepherds, as Jesus says, hey, I want you to take this group of the flock and I want you to lead them well. Again, not the function of an elder, like Jason and I would be elders here at this church, no, 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 just godly leaders, those who are small group leaders in this room, those that lead teams, that you would lead well, that you would point people back to Jesus and all the things that, 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 that you do. Shepherd the flock, and then he says, shepherd the flock among you. 
We have to shepherd the flock among us. This is why, to me, as a pastor, if I can share my heart just a second, this is why membership in a local body is such a big deal. Hebrews says that one day I'm going to have to give an account for the way I shepherded the sheep that are among me. Well, what does that mean? If you're to be among me, does that mean that you have visited our church one time and now you're on some kind of list and now I am accountable, I'm accountable to God and we'll give an account one day to shepherd the, the flock that is among you. This is why it's a big deal that you walk through a membership class and that you sign up to something. And so that I know that you get put on my prayer list and I know as I go to the Lord every morning and at lunchtime and in the evenings and when I get woken up in the night that I know the people that I'm praying for. And I am praying that God would work mightily and that God would give me discernment well beyond my understanding so that I could shepherd the flock that is actually among me. This idea of shepherding the flock is ones that Jeremiah used and Ezekiel used and Isaiah used. It's of God shepherding Israel. Even when there's poor human leadership, even as Jesus is so irate about the religious leaders of the day, he speaks of them being poor leaders, blind guides he calls them, and then God's gonna get them out of the way and then he's gonna bring in true shepherds. Every... Every one of these scenes that Peter's saying is a flashback of a situation that Peter experienced. We, get, we, we do not have time to go through all of it. This, this is my last sermon before my study break. I'm going to try not to preach an hour and 10 minutes. A couple of weeks ago on the culture series, I just, I just went for it. Um, hopefully this is not this today. But do you remember when Jesus restores Peter? Peter had denied him. Peter was not at the cross. Peter had denied Jesus three times in the earshot of Jesus. One of the gospels says that Jesus and Peter make eye contact after that third denial. Peter runs and hides in shame. After the resurrection, this is one of the scenes that we get immediately after the resurrection of Jesus and Peter and the other disciples around the charcoal fire. Remember they'd been fishing all night, the same exact scenario that happened when Jesus called them to be his disciples. He calls them to come in. Peter jumps right in, goes to see Jesus. The charcoal fire, the smell, of course, bringing up all the things that Peter had remembered before when he was called to follow Jesus. And Jesus restores Peter. And remember, he asked Peter several questions. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, of course I love you. Then he says, then shepherd my sheep. Then tend to my lambs. Then feed my lambs. This would become the main objective of Peter's life, a time for him to grow up and take real responsibility and then begin to pour himself out for the sake of his brothers. This would have been seared in his mind and heart at such a level that you can hear the passion that he shares as he knows that his death is not too far away probably. And he is trying to extend that same ministry that Jesus imparted to him. And now he is imparting it to the others that are leading. And he says, listen, this is, I know sometimes we get confused and we get it wrong. Godly leaders, this is what you got to do. You got to shepherd the flock that is among you. You've got to lead them well and care for them. And then he tells us a few other things. He says, one, providing oversight. This is, means to, to, to watch over. It's a compound word in Greek. Two words together mean looking over them. Not like, a, not like a babysitter that you hire who's just a few years older than your kids and is on the phone the whole time and you come home and you ask about the kids and I mean they're alive but they know nothing and your kitchen's a mess and they've not cleaned up anything and, and you ask the kids, hey, how did, how did uh, so-and-so do? As they, were, they were like, she was terrible. Okay, this is not that. This is not. That we're to watch them that are among them providing oversight as like one who really cares about them. A shepherd who is watching over his sheep this way wouldn't try just not to lose them, but would care about each individual one. Oh, that's Frank over there, the sheep. He gets gassy when he eats clover. We gotta keep him away from the clover. And there's Mary. She gets anxious when, she thunder, when it thunders, so I bring her real close. And there's Robert over there. I can't believe he's here. He's always running away. He's the one that always runs away. A shepherd that actually knows the sheep. Exercising oversight, almost like a 
parent went over her toddlers. She knows them. She knows their tics. She knows their tendencies. She knows what they need. And this is what God says through his servant Peter. Peter says then to those that are in spiritual leadership that you, you provide oversight for them. Not just making sure that they don't go to hell. Not just making sure that they, you don't lose them, but you actually provide oversight. And then he gives us three contrasting characteristics. These are like a heart diagnostic or a pitfall maybe, and he lists three of them. And before I dive into this, can I just say that there is a spiritual leadership crisis in the church? This feels a, a bit self-serving to me to even talk about this, but we've seen over the past decade or two, these pastors who rise in fame and influence who, whose fall is great. And no wonder the watching world looks at the church and thinks that we're a bunch of just, we're just a joke. Because you got leaders who don't resemble Jesus at all. And you got followers who won't follow those kind of leaders. And there's no spiritual power. Our counselors today in the city that we send all of our people over to, they, they actually get certified in church hurt, in church trauma, because so many spiritual leaders have done this poorly. I don't have time as a, to talk about all that, but it's a real thing. And I think Peter knows it's, gonna, it's attempting to be a real thing. And so he's gonna just kind of list through. So if you're a spiritual leader in this room, listen. If you're not a spiritual leader in this room, these are the kind of leaders you should look for to follow. That, that you exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but instead willingly. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Tim Keller that just passed said that the pastor is the only job where you're required from day one to love those who you serve. Not under compulsion, not like, oh, I gotta go lead these morons. That's, that's, not, a good, that's not a good leader. Not begrudgingly, not even as Moses did. You remember Moses when he's leading the Israelites and he keeps telling them, God, these are your people. Hard neck, stiff neck, ignorant. I don't even like them. You, I was just having fun, just shepherding the sheep one day in the desert and you showed up. So these are your people. Remind, now listen, that's not the kind of prayer the pastor should be praying. Although I will admit I have prayed that prayer before. Maybe a couple times during COVID pandemic, I've said, God, these, these are your people making a fool of themselves on Facebook. These are your people. This is not the way to lead, but willingly. This is the heart of Jesus. That we could lead with his heart. And a godly leader who doesn't have the heart of Jesus is not going to make an impact. There's a lot of fleshly leaders out there. This is one that leads with the heart of Jesus. You know Jesus? Who's, who's got these disciples that are just donkeys all the time. And he's trying to lead them. And they don't get it. And Peter's trying to correct Jesus. Do you see the heart of Jesus? when he restores them after they all abandoned him, they didn't even go to the cross with him except for John. They went back to their way of life. That's where Jesus found them fishing again. That's the heart of Jesus. If you're a spiritual leader in here and you feel like there's a compulsion to lead but not a willingness, you gotta ask Jesus to give you his heart so that we can actually want to do what we've been asked to do, that we can have joy in the midst of difficulty. Listen, leadership is hard. It is so easy to get jaded. It is so easy to get cynical. Even now, I resist that temptation of someone who comes and tells me, hey, you know, this got this historically long line of not living for Jesus and being difficult and being sour. And they say, you know, I've given my life to Jesus. And in my head, first thing I think, I was like, well, we'll see. We'll see. That's not the right thing for me to say. Man, I pray so. Look at the heart of Jesus. Not under compulsion, but willingness, willingly. Then secondly, not for shameful gain, but, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, 
godly leaders, it's not about your glory. It's not about your status. It's not about the people who recognize you. It's not using this platform to exalt yourself, but to exalt Jesus. It's not using the opportunities of service as like steps for a better c- career or for more followers on, on social. This, that's not what it's about. Not that it gets paid more. One of my dad's, you know, my dad was a pastor. And one of his things was he, he never asked a church what the compensation package was, even though I think my mom would w- want to know. And they would pick up and leave and move across country or they would go plant a church. No compensation package. Didn't even know day one of the job what he was going to get paid. And because of that, we lived in some pretty poor circumstances sometimes. But my dad's heart, man, so full of joy. It was not about the money. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Jason George says it this way, as leaders, do not trade this promise of eternal honor for a few crumbs of temporary status. John Piper, a retired pastor, maybe you've heard of him and whether you agree with him theologically or not, it's not the point. He had this practice that someone else outed him for that he cleaned the bathrooms of that mega church every week. He cleaned the toilets. So it could be a visual and aromic reminder that it's not about the glory. It's not about my glory. But eagerly, that you can't wait to do what you get to do. And then thirdly, he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but instead as as examples to the flock. Maybe your translation says, not lording over and not, 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 not subduing through, uh, through strength. I mean, we can be honest. There, there is an attractiveness to power. You know, if I had power to do this or that, there is an attractiveness to that. If I get in my flesh, most of the time, it's with ignorance or incompetence in driving, both of those. When you see a yield sign, friends, you don't have to stop. It just means yield. That means you can just merge on over. And if I'm trying to go by you and you're stopped at a yield sign, I am so tempted to get in the flesh at that moment. I wish sometimes I had the power when someone cuts me off in traffic that I could make their AC stop working just like right then. You know, I don't want to hurt them. I just want them to be miserable for a little bit to be like, what's wrong with this thing? And be a little thing because you're a bad driver. That's, that's why I want you to know that. If they flip me off, I wish their radio would get stuck on K-Love really loud for a long time. Maybe they'd be forced to go on the K-Love cruise and um, (laughs) go worship with Phillips, Craig, and Dean or something. That they would know mercy came running for them. That's why the mercy came running. Um, What if I had the power to make people kind or to make evil people stop? I, I wish I had that power. But there's this reminder that As a spiritual leader, it's not about domineering. It's not about lordship. That kind of power and control wasn't the kind of authority that Jesus used. Instead of domineering, even over his very own disciples, what did he do? He served them to the very end. Scott McKnight, a theologian on this, says, power, no more today than in the first century, is addictive. It leads to unworthy motives and pollutes decisions that are to be made under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Instead of seeking God's agenda, power-hungry church leaders pursue their own, doing what they can to increase their own reputation. That is not the way that Jesus led, though. What did Jesus say even of himself in Matthew 20? Jesus says it's going to be common that spiritual leaders are are going to want to serve their own agenda. But just so you know, as the example, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to serve to the ultimate extent that he would give his life as a ransom for many, he says, his own words. Who doesn't want a leader like that? And what's our motivation to lead like that? 
John 10, Jesus uses the same language in verse four of John 10 and verse 11 of John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and, and he cares nothing for the sheep. Not Frank or Mary or Robert. He doesn't care for them. He doesn't know them. But I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. You see Peter making this connection. Verse four, 1 Peter five. And when the chief shepherd appears, if you lead like this, when the chief shepherd appears, you might not get the get, 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 get shameful gain or you might not get the power that you thought might be, might be possible or you, or, or you might not even have those that are willing to follow you. But when the chief shepherd appears, if you lead with these pure motives like this in the manner that Jesus even leads us, you'll receive an unfading crown of glory. The unfading crown of glory. The Olympic games in this time were centered in Rome and they would run and they would compete. And although Nero had it rigged most of the times where he won most of the games, even though he was short and pudgy and still ran, and, you know, ran the, you know, the six second 40 or whatever, but they would win this little crown and the crown was just, Temporary, it would fade and it would be nothing within a month. And they would discipline their body and run and compete, all those things for this. And he said, but those who compete, those who serve like Jesus did when the chief shepherd of fear are gonna receive this unfading crown of glory. I love, he calls, reminds us the chief shepherd this is the same word today that we would use the word lead pastor. That's why I don't have that title. No one at our church has the title lead pastor. I'm not saying it's a bad title. I'm just saying I don't want to get confused. I'm not the lead pastor. I'm not the chief shepherd. Jesus is our lead pastor. He's the one who leads us. He's the one I'm going to give an account to. He's the one who has said there's, there's actually greater responsibility that we would care as under shepherds because of the ministry of teaching. He's the lead pastor. He's the chief shepherd and one day he's gonna come. And even talking to Peter, some of these elders had already lost their lives and many would lose their lives. Peter himself would be killed within a decade of writing this very letter. And when the chief shepherd appears, you're gonna receive the unfading crown of glory. Even if you lose your life in this endeavor, we have the promise of an unfading crown of glory. Even if your pastor or your leaders don't lead perfectly, which I certainly will not. I will fail you. I will let you down. I will make wrong decisions. I, absolutely, I will. But even when I, as an under shepherd, fail, you are following the greater shepherd, the chief shepherd who promises never to fail. He never grows weary. He never is jaded or leads with cynicism. Isn't that great news? Friends, we need godly leadership. But then he's gonna keep going down. This is gonna get in your neighborhood in just a second. Just wait, godly fellowship. Being examples, he says, to those who are in the flock. Likewise, verse five, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He changes it from godly leaders to godly followers. What does it mean to be a godly follower or a godly church member or, or, or a godly, um, what does godly fellowship look like? Basically answering the question, how do we respond to the spiritual leaders in our life? Whether it's a small group leader, a ministry team leader, a pastor, or elder, how do we? He says those who are younger, again, this is not specific to age, but this is specific to position. Likewise, you are younger, be subject to the elders. Be subject, sounds like this, like peasant to a king, pressed down, forced down, but this is another compound word in the Greek, which means to arrange yourself under. It means that you have a posture of humility. I'm gonna let them lead me. 
I'm going to let the shepherds that God has placed in my life lead me. It is hard to lead sheep. It is hard to lead people who don't want to be led. Who don't ever tell you when there's a crisis. Who don't ever tell you when they're struggling with doubt. Who never let you know the real them. Friends, one of the best things you can do is let your leaders know the real you. Let them pray for the big decisions in your life. Let them shepherd and care for you. They don't know by osmosis all the time. You can let them know. I'm not a super touchy guy. And one of my leaders that leads our national network is a hugger. And he likes to hug when you greet him. And I did not know this. I could not do anything when I see someone but wave at them. And that's good. That feels like a hug to me. Just a little, how you doing, right? And then we could give uh, knuckles. That's even better. I could do that. Even a high five. I'll high five some of you. You think it's weird. This is, this is my way of saying I love you. I'll just high five, right? This is how we do it. He wants an actual hug. And you know how I know he wants a hug? Because he told me. My preferred way of greeting is the, the hug. And although I think that's really funny, I love that as a pastor for someone to say, hey, you, you don't have to touch me. <laughs> we, we can wave. Or, hey, I, you know, I'd like... I'd like you to greet me with a hug. I got three texts yesterday from people in my life, close life, that were struggling. And it is such an honor to get those texts because now I know what's going on in your life and I can pray with you. I sent out some of those texts to spiritual leaders in my life yesterday and said, would you pray for me today? I'm struggling with some things. Would you pray for me? That's what it means to, 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 to follow, right? Be subject to them. And, and then he, say, he says, at the, the very first word of verse five, he says, likewise, or maybe your translation says, in the same way. He had just said these, all these pastors, then he says, likewise, or in the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And I was thinking, what does that mean, likewise, or in the same way? After reading and reading and reading it, here's what I think he's getting at. We need to learn how to submit or arrange ourselves under in the same way that the godly leaders are, to, are supposed to lead. They're supposed to lead willingly and we're supposed to follow willingly, not under compulsion. They're supposed to lead not for gain, but eagerly and we should follow eagerly. Not just to make yourself look good, but we're going to follow just so the pastor thinks we're a good Christian. No, no, no. We, sh we should follow in the same way as examples to those who are following us. Does that make sense? Parents, your kids learn how to respond to authority by watching you respond to authority. And if you're always bad-mouthing the guy in the overall office, if you're always grumbling under your breath against the policeman in the city, if you're always shaking your fist to the, to the, to, to about your pastor and gossiping about him in the car and they're hearing, then parents, do not be surprised when your kids do the same thing to your leadership, where they grumble against it and they murmur against it and they complain and they rebel because they're learning how to follow by watching you follow. Does that make sense? Likewise, in the same way, he says, This seems pretty simple to understand, but hard to live out. Hebrews 13, the author of Hebrews says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those, again, who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden for that would be of no benefit to you. Basically, if you drive your teacher crazy, when you're on the, on the thing between a C and a D, you're not going to get the push. That's what he's saying. It's not going to serve you well to be hard to lead. It's not going to serve you well to complain against those that are in leadership. He says here, the author of Hebrews, that when your leaders think about you, they should think about what a joy it is to actually lead you. Because fleshly, when, when we lead, if we think fondly of people that we're leading, we're going to go the extra mile and it's going to be a joy to lead them. If you're only calling when you've got all the problems or you're upset, if you're always hard to lead, if you're always pushing back, those leaders are not going to want to lead you. And every time they see your name come up on the caller ID as it comes across, they're going to be like, take a big sigh and say, ignore. We'll talk to them later. 
But if you're a joy to lead, if you call all the time when there's no problems just to encourage them. A couple of years ago during Pastor Appreciation Month, which is in October, by the way, um, if you want to put that on your calendar, <clears throat> me and Jason still using some gift cards from, from the last year. Thank you. Um, a couple of years ago, you gave us a binder, each separately. Remember that? You got a binder. And it had a hundred handwritten notes in it of our people who were just saying, thank you for leading. And on ministry weeks, when it's been really difficult, which happens a lot, probably once a month, I take out that binder and I just start reading some of these verbal affirmations and it is, it's just joy to my soul. Godly leadership, godly fellowship. Now here's the key to both of them. The key is humility. It's a posture of humility. Friends, we don't have a content problem in the church. On my phone right now, I can open my Logos app and I have 10,000 commentaries. Everything that anyone has ever written on this very verse, I can pull it up and read it. We don't have a content problem. What we have is an obedience problem. We, leaders and followers both. This is why Peter comes so strong at this. If you look at it in, in verse five, likewise, you are younger, be subject to the elders, and then clothe yourselves, all of you. Just in case the leaders thought that that was just for the followers. No, he says, all of you, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. This is a posture of humility. We don't, we've got to have the posture of humility. He even uses, this is that firm language. He says, clothe yourselves. This is the, uh, this is the word we talked a couple weeks ago about girding up, the gird up your loins as you would have the, the long bathrobe looking thing and you would, you would have to wrap it around and wrap it around and get it up here and tie it and then tuck it all in and tie a belt around it. That's, that's to gird yourself. And this is what he's saying. This is not about putting on a shirt. He's saying to, to gird yourself with humility. This is an imperative. This is a command. This saying you're never going to feel like doing this because you're not going to feel like doing this and because your leaders aren't going to be perfect and because the people who are following are not going to be perfect. Leaders, you got to lead with humility. You're going to have to just gird up and do it. And followers, you're going to have to, sometimes your leaders, you're not going to understand. You're going to have to gird yourself with humility. You're going to have to clothe yourself. You're going to have to wrap yourself. This is going to take effort. This is going to something you might have to do every morning. It might be something you have to do every day. It might be something you have to do every couple hours. You've got to actually put on, clothe yourself with humility. In verse six, again, a command, an imperative, humble yourselves. That's not like take this magic pill and you'll feel humble. Listen to some K-love and you're gonna feel humble. No, you're not, you're never gonna feel humble. You're gonna want, your, your flesh is gonna wanna push back. How dare he talk to me that way? How dare she respond to me like that? That's how we're naturally, we just wanna make someone's AC not work, right? That's, that's how that works. Humble yourselves, gird yourself with humility. Philippians 2 would use a similar language. It says, do, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Notice that, again, this humility is not a feeling. This is a position we take. It's a posture we take. It literally means to, to stoop lower. Humility is demonstrated by submission. I was having lunch with someone this week and they told me that they, had no, that they did not have a problem with humility. And I was like, and there you do. Yeah, you do, you just said it. Because if you have to tell other people how humble you are, you're not at all. If on your business card says the most humble of God's servants, we know what your problem is, bro. Humility is demonstrated by submission. It's the ability to cheerfully put away our own agenda for God. Even if God's agenda is expressed to another person in a way that I do not like. Submission. Again, he says, all of you. And the rest of these yous will be plural. So I like this because Peter speaks Southern. This is y'all. Y'all clothe yourselves in humility. Y'all put on humility. 
Y'all be humble is what he's saying. For the elders and the youngers that we should strive to serve each other. Let the pastor strive to serve the people. Let the people strive to serve the pastors. Do you see the interdependence again? Just like as Paul would talk about marriage, just as we talked about marriage a couple weeks ago, that, that if, you're, if the husband's submitting and the wife is submitting and they're both humble and they're coming at each other, can you see what kind of beautiful relationship that is? Be clothed with humility. This phrase clothed is a rare word used in the New Testament. It's only used a couple at a time and it's used in John 13 where Jesus himself clothed himself in humility. This word would have been used of a slave garment. It's basically similar to our apron. If we're to go in and we're about to cook food or about to serve, about to clean and we don't want to bleach on ourselves, we might put an apron over us and tie it around so we don't this is the posture of servant. So if you know that mom or dad or friends got an apron on that they're, they're, they've shown up to serve. This is the same word. Isn't this amazing? Again, Peter flashing back. John chapter 13, Jesus got all the disciples around. It's about to be the end of his life and they're all kind of leaning in. They're arguing who's gonna be the greatest and Jesus knows that they don't get it. They wanna zap lightning down and eat up whole groups of people. Like Jesus knows they don't get it. And he gets into the room and not, a dare, not, not, not even one of them dared step up and say, you know what, I will wash the feet of everyone. Their feet are nasty and grimy. They're fixing to come to a formal meal to celebrate Passover. They're all around the room. Everybody's looking who's gonna do it, who's gonna do it. Make John do it. He's the youngest. Yeah, but he, Jesus loves him. He's the beloved. We can't make John do it. Make Peter do it. No, I can't make Peter do it. You know what he'll do. He, called, he, he, he tells Jesus what to do. We can't make Peter do it. Make Thaddeus do it. Most of you didn't know Thaddeus was one of the disciples. He actually was. Make the other Judas. There were two Judases. Can you imagine? That Judas changed his name quickly after all that went down, right? It's true. Make him do it. There's two Judases. Nobody even knows who's who. They look alike. Nobody did it. Verse 3 of John chapter 13. Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and he took a towel, same word. He took a towel. This is the posture of a servant. Clothed in humility, he took a towel and he tied it around his waist and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter. This is Peter, he's in the thing. And he's fussing at Jesus again. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand, but afterwards you're gonna understand. In 1 Peter 5, we see his understanding. That to lead is not to puff up, it's not to exert yourself, it's to serve. In the same way to follow is not to show the coach how great you are at something, it's to serve. Be clothed with humility. A few marks of humility, just if you're wondering. It's the willingness to perform the lowest and smallest services for Jesus' sake. Some of you who get here early and you do some things. You go clean the bathrooms that you didn't mess up, that whatever event they had here yesterday and it didn't get clean, the toilets didn't get flushed. Some of you do this. I've caught you doing it. You go in there, you clean, you wipe up, you, you unstop toilets. You don't have to, you don't, you're not paid to do that. Nobody expects you to. This is just one of those little things. You'll never be on stage. We'll never give you employee of the month because no one even sees you doing it. You're not doing it for us. You're not doing it for the stage. You're not doing it for glory. You're doing it to serve Jesus. That's a mark of humility. Some of you who work in kids and you work in kids every week and you work with the twos and three-year-olds that are gonna just wear you down to nothing. And that text comes through on Saturday. Hey, I've got the two and threes tomorrow and I'm sick. Will someone wanna step in for me? Crickets. <laughs> no, I planned on having a good day tomorrow and I was, uh, that's not part of it. And then some of you know you do it. Even if you've already served this month, even if that means you served three times this month, you go do it. And most women never notice. But God sees you. He sees that mark of humility. It's the willingness to be ignored by men. 
It's a willingness to serve people who don't even want you to serve them. And then he quotes, Peter does Proverbs 3. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Just to show you, to remind you that humility is essential in our relationship with God. If we want to live in a culture of grace, God's grace, his unmerited favor towards us, then we have to lay aside our pride and choose humility, not only to him, but also to one another. To live in the culture of grace, all you need is need. And if you come in like you don't have any needs, then you can't be a part. You're not invited to the party. The access to the party is your need. This is how you participate in the culture of grace. And God is committed to letting you know your neediness. And if you want to act all proud like you got it all together, you just keep doing that and see how it works for you. Because if you're one of God's, he's going to discipline his kids, Hebrews tells us. And he's going to slowly take one thing after another. He's going to just knock all the crutches that are propping up your little weak life that you think is so secure. Until you reach a place of so desperation that you're like, God, I've got to have you. And he's like, now we can get to work. God resists the proud. This is, this is the term of a wrestler. The verb vividly pictures God as one who places himself in a wrestling match with the one who is not humble. Anybody want to wrestle against God? See, grace and pride are eternal enemies. Pride demands that God bless me in light of what I think I deserve, but grace deals with me on the basis of what is in God, not on the basis of what's in me. Church, aren't we thankful for grace? Let's get to the unified resistance. This is the third point. I'm going to blow through this. At least I'm going to try to. Godly leaders, godly followers, here's the reason that it's important. Skip to verse eight, be sober-minded and watchful. Be sober-minded, be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in the faith. The reason that it's important that we have unified resistance is because we have a real enemy. Here he says he's like a devil. The devil's like a roaring lion not just yelling out there, but he's seeking someone to devour. You ever, you, ever watch the, you ever watch the lions on the BBC or National Geographic? And it's pretty horrific. I did this a couple of times when Hudson was really young and scarred him for life. Um, and there's the wildebeest out there just grazing in the field. And that lion will sit in that tall grass for hours waiting for one to be separated from the herd. He's waiting, seeking someone to devour. This is what the enemy's doing in your life right now. It would give him no greater pleasure than to devour, to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And he's letting you just think that it's just a, the sunny day in the Sahara. He just, oh, everything's good, and I get, got a good bank account, and I feel secure. And slowly you are separating yourself from the people of God that are supposed to be watchful. That's why he says you got to be sober-minded. you got to think clearly. you got to understand the time we're in. And you got to be watchful. You need to be watchful, but you can only look in one direction. Who's going to watch your back? Who's going to watch the sides? Oh, you need other people to do that. This is why godly leaders and godly followers have to clothe themselves in humility and have a unified resistance against the enemy. That makes sense, church? This is why this is so important. This is why showing up to an MC is so important. I know you got other things to do in your life, but those other things do not protect you from the lion who's hiding in the tall grass waiting to devour you. This is why DGs, discipleship groups, forget what you call them. This is why you need three or four or five or, or, or 10 men and women in your life who know you, who know what makes you tick, who know the, 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 the ace up the, the sleeve of the enemy, who just wants to devour you. And we fill our, our lives with so many trivial things. I can't make it to gathering. I got this and this and this. And listen, I'm not trying to be legalistic with your life, but I am saying you have a real enemy and he, he wants to devour you. And he'll do anything he can to accomplish his purpose. He's just waiting in the tall grass. He's waiting for you to get separated from the herd. He's waiting for you to step in a pothole, hurt yourself. 
He's waiting for you to fall down. He's waiting for you to get so discouraged. He's waiting for your bad day or your bad season. He's just waiting. You're going to push yourself outside of community. No one's watching your back. And then he is certainly going to pounce. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Then he says, but resist him firm in your faith. Scripture says the devil is the father of lies. This is what his tactic is. It's deceit. He wants to deceive you. He wants you to think that everything's fine, that we're not in a war. We're we're not in any kind of spiritual battle. This is just a good day and the sun's shining and my kids are going to a good school and they're on a good track and they're in the popular crowd and they're doing all the things. That's what he wants you to think. Deceit. He's the father of lies. And then it also says, Scripture says of him that he's accuser of the brethren. This is, he uses the, the weapons of shame and offense. Oh, this person offended me, so I'm going to separate relationship. And now the person that used to be watching my back is not watching my back anymore. Shame and offense. Or he takes the shame, accuser of the brethren, the things you do when you sin. Oh, the sin is just the jab. The uppercut is the shame. Who you think you are? Trying to lead a small group, trying to be a witness. Who do you think you are? Hiding all these things. You'll never be able to serve God. You'll never be able to, that's the shame. Oh, he will heap it on. And if you, better, you, if you don't have Romans 8 memorized, that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, that shame will knock you flat out. I feel like I'm preaching myself today. Am I preaching myself? We have an enemy waiting to pounce on those that get disconnected because of offense or disunity. And because of that, we've got to be sober-minded, think clearly, and we've got to be watchful. (laughs) I've got no time left, and this is the verse I really wanted to preach, verse 7. Casting all your cares upon him. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, verse 6, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Friends, you can rely on God. You can cast all your anxiety on him. Literally, the Greek means hurl. Cast it and leave it. Hurl it upon him. He's not telling us, hey, just pray about it. Hey, just mention it to me. He's saying, no, you take that anxiety. And it's not wrong to have an anxious thought. It's wrong to let that anxious thought dominate your life. It's wrong for it to have way with you, right? You've been bought with a price. You, you, you are not a slave to sin anymore. He's saying it's not wrong to have an anxious thought, but we have an anxious thought. We have to take it, just as Paul says, and we take it to the feet of Jesus. And Peter used this language of hurling it. We're going to take it. This is not, you know, when you teach your son to play catch and you just throw a little this and a little this. Hudson doesn't like to catch so much because when we were doing a little this, I did like one of these and hit him in the face twice. Um, it was, it's not good. It's not my dad, but proudest dad moment. This is what he's saying. You take that anxiety that you have and I want you to hurl it as far as you can upon the feet of Jesus and leave it there. Hurl it onto me, he's asking you to do. Actually make, God's saying to us, actually make me responsible for that problem. Set it on my shoulders. My shoulders aren't too weak to carry it. By By the way, that doesn't mean that we don't do anything about it. It's just that the burden, the responsibility of making it work out is not on you anymore. It's on him. It's his problem. It's not your problem. And he may get you to do some things with it, but the weight of solving it is not on you. It's on him. Hurl it on me, he says. Make me the owner of it where the responsibility of solving it is set on me. Isn't that just the best invitation you've heard today? Your bank account's not, not leveling out. You're being a good steward with the money you have and it's still not covering all the bills. Hurl it on him. You've got sons or daughters that aren't making the wisest decisions. Some of them have walked away from God. You can't do anything to change their heart, but you know what you can do? You can take it and you can hurl it on him. Your wife's not acting like the wife that you thought that she should be, or your husband's not acting like the husband that he's supposed to be, and you're just so concerned with it. You know what? Just hurl it on to Jesus. Just say, Jesus, I can't do anything. Will you take this? You know the prayer that I pray, and I prayed it a thousand times last night as I woke up? I've told you this before. God, I give these people and this problem to you. I can't do anything about it. I'm just trying to sleep. You can do everything about it. You just give it to him and you give it to him and you give it to him. Hurl it on him. And then leave it there. I've had a huge problem with this where I would pray about a problem then I would pick the weight 
of it right back up as soon as I was done praying about it and I'd carry it around again. And I've been, I've been doing this with our church situation. You know, we did all this, we raised all this money and we've been trying to build and you can't build and you can't get a loan. And I've drawn so many things on different whiteboards about, well, maybe we could do this and we could move to the Applebee's or we could, uh, we could have church in a tent. So we, you know, we could, we, could do, we could do all these things I've just drawn all over and I can't do anything about it. And God's just like, Luke, you idiot, give it to me. And I'd give it to him. And then I'd leave the office and I'd take it right back. And I'm like, what is this so weighty again for? Because you didn't leave it with me. Sometimes this hurling is at every second of your life. You're just hurling it on him. You're just hurling it on him. The salvation of your kids, the crisis you're walking through, the health of your friends, your own health, whatever it is, you get an anxious thought, don't cast your anxiety, hurl it onto him because this is such a beautiful picture because he cares for you. Church, you can have rest in him. What a friend we have in Jesus. With all our griefs with him we share. What a privilege to carry, right? Everything to God in prayer. I think the hymnist should have wrote, hurl it on him. That should be the refrain. We're going to hurl it on him. You can find rest in him. He cares for you. Not that he just thinks you're cute. I think the squirrels in my backyard are cute until they start eating my bird feed and then I shoot them, right? They're dead and cute, right? It's illegal. I'm out of city limits. It's fine. I don't feed them. I don't weep for them. I'm not buying food for them. God doesn't think you're cute. He cares for you because he's the chief shepherd. You're one of the sheep. You know, scripture says he knows every tear that you've ever cried keeps them up in heaven. He knows every prayer that you've ever prayed, keeps them up in heaven. They're constantly going before the throne. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He thinks of you, Psalmist says, more than all the grains of sand on all the earth. Can you, can you imagine anyone that cares for you that much? He cares for you. In verse six, he says, so at the proper time that he would exalt you. In verse seven, he says, he cares for you. And this is verse 10, I'm ending with this. The band can come up. This is my dad's life verse. This is what's on his epitaph on his gravestone. First Peter 5.10, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen, church. Verse 10, he himself. He's not sending an angel to do this. John the B's not coming back to life to do this. He's not sending Elisha on a mission to do this. He's begun this already in your life. For every believer in this room, he is working this in your life right now. He is working to restore and to confirm and to strengthen and to establish you. He himself will restore all that the enemy's taken, all that the enemy's broken. He himself is working to restore it. And in, in part right now, and one day in full, we're gonna hear that, that, that trumpet and we're gonna meet him. Everyone who's left is gonna rise. Those are dead gonna rise first. We're gonna meet him in the air and then we're gonna see him perfectly restore everything that the enemy's taken and stolen. He's beginning that work even now. He's gonna restore. He himself, he himself will confirm. He'll assure you of your identity, his incredible love for you, his seal of approval and love for you. Every time I get really close to God, this is all I hear. Luke, I love you as a son, not because of what you do, but because you're mine. He himself will confirm you. He himself will strengthen you on the days where you feel weak and tired and broken and you can't go anymore. He himself is working at that very moment to strengthen you and he'll establish you. Church, be watchful. Be sober-minded. Expect Satan to come after you with all he has, but expect God to be stronger and better. Let's pray. Lord, I love your word. Lord, would we just not hear the word this morning, but live it out? What would it look like, Lord, if our church was this way? If it was made up of godly leaders who are leading like you, of godly followers who are, who are following in that same way, just as you followed the Father? And we clothe ourselves with humility and we've got this culture of honor and love and prayer. I think we would change the world. But Lord, you need to do some heart work in us this morning. Where there's sin residing, I pray we would confess it. 
where there's doubt reigning, I pray that we would, I pray we'd just bring them to you. Those in this room that need to take a step today, maybe they're not trusting you, maybe their lives are plagued with anxiety, they just bring those things to you today. They would hurl it. Some of them even gathering down here at the altar, they would just, just hurling anxieties on you. Our prayer team's gonna be in the back. Lord, I, I pray just for the moments back there with the prayer team as people are just saying, hey, would you, would you help me hurl this on the lap of Jesus? I've got a son or daughter who's now walking with Jesus. I'm praying for their salvation. A friend of mine is sick. They're eating up with cancer. Would, would you pray with me? I'm taking care of my parents and it's a hard season and I'm weak and I'm weary. Would you just pray with me that, that God would strengthen me in this moment? I pray over those prayers. Lord, that we would be honest and vulnerable just for a second and we would let our soul be known. That those who have just played religious games in here for a long time, that they would take a step of faith today, that they would come to know you as the chief shepherd who cares for his sheep. This time is yours. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We'll have our communion service here when you're ready. This is just a physical symbol of an inward reality you come when you're ready take as much time we're not going to rush you out of here we're running a little late y'all hug those kids workers that are working overtime today do what God's put on your heart don't miss this opportunity